this morning, Lee, or are you all right? Well, good morning. Uh, welcome here this morning. You can turn in your Bible to First Peter. Last week, we started uh, a new series that'll take us uh, hopefully towards Christmas here, uh, towards Advent. It sounds bad to even say that we're leading towards Christmas already. Um, the snow is in the forecast, but it's always wrong, right? The forecast is always wrong, so we're okay. Uh, while you're flipping there, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a, a rundown of what happened last week in the first 12 verses of Peter because this plays very importantly into what's coming. So you'll see in verse 13 when it says, Therefore, whenever you see that word, you have to remind yourself of the context of what's happened immediately preceding that because what Peter's going to explain today builds on what we looked at last week. And I know that uh, some of you are visiting and you weren't here last week. Some of you... Uh, we're away or sick or, or whatever it might be. And so I just want us to understand the whole context of what's happening here. So Peter's written this book and he says right in the beginning to the elect exiles. And, and we talked about how that's different than most of the time we read that word exile. This time he's simply talking to believers and, and making them realize that this world is not our home. We have accepted Christ, we have surrendered our hearts to him, we have made him Lord of our life, and now our eternity will be in heaven with God forever, and that is our home. And so while we're here, while we're on the earth, we need not act like this is our home and this is our final place. Because if we do, we will be sidetracked by all kinds of stuff that the world has to offer and forget what God has to offer. And so it's all about perspective. And, and so Peter starts to talk about uh, salvation in a certain sense. And the more I read scripture, the more this becomes true. Is Maybe you've heard this before. Is, is The Bible is really God's uh, explanation to us of who he is to show us how much he loves us. But what I'm seeing more and more and more is that we're not even really a part of this book, is that the center is God. This is about him and not about us. And yes, we have some part to play in it, and there's obedience and some of these other things that we're going to look at this morning. But what Peter argues in these first few verses of chapter 1 is that God has created us, and he loves us desperately. He's adopted us into his family, and he holds us, and he keeps us. And if we've surrendered our hearts to Christ, then he alone is responsible for the holding on to of our salvation. And so in some ways, that's very good news because we don't have to work to prove something as long as we've surrendered our hearts to Christ and we've said, you are Lord of my life, then God says, I now have you and I will hold you. And there's nothing you can do where you can get away from me. What a comforting thing that is to us to be held by the God of the universe. Then it got into some really, really practical things about suffering and, and every one of us deals with suffering, with hurt, with pain, we grieve. And, and I just love the wording that he uses, that James uses. He says, in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials, and you could not get more unspecific than that. And I think that's good, because what that tells us then is the trials that we face, regardless of their magnitude, regardless of the specific nature of it, that all of it is designed by God for our good. And so what the enemy means for evil, what he means to, to bring us down and to hurt us and to cause us doubt and fear, God can take that and he can redeem it and he can turn it into something beautiful. So regardless of what the trials that we're facing are, maybe there's some tension in the family unit. Maybe we don't get along with our extended family because something has been said or something has been done and perhaps years have gone by but that hurt is is still there. Perhaps we've lost a job. Perhaps we've lost a child. Perhaps we've lost 
many people in our lives. And then Peter says also, persecution is going to come too, and that's a various form of trial that we're going to face. And all these things are A, to be expected, because we live in a broken and a fallen world. That's just the reality of it. But that God has purpose in our pain, he has purpose in our hurt, and ultimately what Peter says, what James says, what Ephesians says, various passages we looked at last week, all of them are meant so that our faith would mature and our understanding of God would grow and our trust in Jesus would grow more. Just like anything in life, if you say, I want to trust Jesus more, if that's your prayer, then life is going to get more messy so that you learn how to trust him. It doesn't get easier so that it's more convenient to trust him. It doesn't work that way. And so Peter talks through some of these things and then finishes with this idea of, and ultimately we should be exceedingly grateful because we as, as mankind, we are the only thing that God created that he created in his image and that he has chosen to redeem. And that should make us, in humility, look up at him and realize that we are his handiwork, that he loves us desperately, and he loves us more than we could ever possibly know, and we alone can have redemption if we trust in his son, Jesus. What a great privilege that is. So this brings us to verse 13. Therefore, or, or you could translate that, because of this, this is preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. When you dissect this paragraph and you look into it, you see there's three imperatives or, or, or three commands that Peter gives. But sometimes in, in looking at those specific things, we miss what happens first. And so the three commands that we're going to read, read about are to set our hope in the Lord. That's a command, hope and Lord, set your entire perspective on him. The second one is fear the Lord. And, and we're going to explain this, but the Bible has this beautiful way of saying things like, you can have hope and yet fear in the Lord. And those seem paradoxical, but they're not. And then the third one, love one another. So this is the three aspects that we're going to look at. But this first bit of this, verse 13, sets the tone for everything, and I think it's important. It says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare for action. Ephesians warns us, uh, Paul tells us that the battle that we face is not flesh and blood, right? It's against the principalities, 
It's against the spiritual forces. It's, it's against that which we cannot see. And so when you think of prepare for battle, when you think of get ready, and, and Paul talks about this with this context of put on the armor of God, he's talking from a mental sense, not a physical sense. And I think if you're anything like me, that's, that's usually not the first thought. When you hear prepare for battle, it's about the things that I'm about to do in a physical sense to get ready for that. But Peter says, and notice the wording, preparing your minds for action and be sober-minded. Then he goes into the commands. This is the assumption of you have to do this for these things to happen. Prepare your minds for action. The mental strain is often more exhausting and more difficult than the physical strain. And, and many of you know that. You've had jobs where the physical part of it maybe isn't as difficult, but the mental part is. Or where you're raising your kids and, and yes, it's physically taxing, but the emotional strain that comes with that is, is far more. And so as I was thinking about what a good analogy for this would be, uh, I, I, my mind was brought back to a few years back. How many of you like the Olympics? Great, four of you. Okay. Good. So, I always pick good analogies, I guess. Uh, I love watching the Olympics. Uh, I had the privilege to be in Greece during the Olympics, doing some ministry work, uh, and it was pretty crazy, but there was this thing that happened at the Olympics that, that boggled my mind. Has anyone ever, you probably wouldn't tune in to watch this, but maybe you've seen it while the TV's on. You ever seen race walking? Anybody? All right. When I saw this, I was like, this is, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. People, so there's, there's two different races. There's a 20-kilometer race walk for men and women, and then there's a 50-kilometer one for men. But so people are walking 20 kilometers in a race. And all I can think of when I watch the TV is, why don't you run instead of walk? Like the ADD gets in, and walking seems like it would take way too long, and running would be better. And so I thought this was just the silliest sport ever, and I was like, when is this thing going to be taken out of the Olympics? But as I started to watch, and you listen to the announcers, it's actually one of the most technical sports in all of the Olympics, because there's very specific technique, and I'm not going to demonstrate it for you, <laughs> just in case somebody was hopeful for that. We can put that up on the screen next week if you want, because those hips do things that mine don't. But... There's very specific technique with your arms, with your legs, with your hips, things that have to be done right. And there's judges that watch the entire race and watch every single person to make sure that they don't break the rules. And so that in and of itself is pretty crazy. But then when I saw the finish and I looked at the time, I was shocked and I couldn't believe it. The 20-kilometer race ended in one hour, 19 minutes, and four seconds. So just for the record... That's over 15 kilometers an hour walking. That's an average of three minutes, just under three minutes and 58 seconds per kilometer. So for those of you who are old school, how many ran the mile in school? That's like running an average mile over this 20 kilometers at 627. But that's walking. I don't think very many of us, if we just went for one mile right now, could break 627. And they're walking. And it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe this. So, so I started to look into this. And, and what I found out is actually as technical as the sport is, the mental side is the hardest part of this. Because what they say is you're actually forcing your body into doing something that it can no longer do. By the end of the race, so the last few kilometers of it, if your mental focus is broken at all, in any way, you will not complete the race. 
And so I watched, and I saw this one guy. Oh, again, I almost did it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, he was walking, and, and I guess there's, again, all these rules of lines and when you're allowed to pass and how you're allowed to pass. And one guy rubbed the other guy on his shoulder, and his focus was distracted. He had about two kilometers left. His focus was distracted, and he fell like a newborn giraffe, and he couldn't get up, and the race was over for him. He physically could not stand back up, and yet he was doing a, a, a pace of 6.30 per mile. And so when, when I started to think about that, and, and you heard the announcers talking about it, is that they said the mental strain that they put on themselves is they shut everything else off around them. Everything. And if they lose their focus, it's over. They will not complete it. And as I thought about that in a spiritual sense of things, is that's what we're being called to, is prepare our minds for action. And that action is not what consumes most of our time and our minds. Yes, there are things that we have to do. There's jobs we have to do. There's bills we have to pay. That's a reality of the world that we live in. But we cannot use that as an excuse to put God over here on this one little side and say, I'll go to you, <clears throat> let's say, Sunday mornings. Sunday evenings, maybe, maybe at a Bible study, maybe at a prayer meeting, but we cannot dichotomize and put God on one side and the rest of our world or the rest of our normal life on the other. If we do that, we will fail. We will fall and we won't be able to get up. We have to prepare ourselves for the battle that is coming. And I shouldn't even say that's coming, the battle that's here. See, we live in a media-saturated world where it just competes for your attention. And then, and then there's God, through the word of God, sitting on our nightstand, begging for us to open it and read it and to learn more about who he is. And if I can speak from my own experience here, is I'm more apt when I wake up to grab my phone and to check what's happened than I am to grab the word of God. And that's something that I gotta deal with. And I think there's probably many of you who are like that. The news or the newspaper or, or whatever it might be, a routine that we have. What we should be desiring is what God has called us to do, to prepare us for whatever that day is going to bring. Because if we ever think there's not going to be trial or tribulation or struggle in the day coming, usually about 10 minutes in, we realize we're wrong. So Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. In other words, think rightly about what's important. And then he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's trying to orient us to look at things with the proper perspective to realize that what we have our hope set on is not the things of this world, but the things that matter for eternity. There is never going to be a time, if we get to you know, the judgment, we're never going to regret that we didn't play soccer a little bit more. Or that we didn't study that one subject a little bit harder. I'm not saying you shouldn't study. There's no kids here. That's okay. We can say that. We're never going to say, I wish I had driven my car just a little bit more. Or I, or I wish, what we're going to wish is that we wished we put, put more focus on Christ. And on the opposite side of that, the only things that we're going to have any regrets about is that we wasted our time. So we need to set our hope 
on the grace brought by Jesus Christ. Then he says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's, he's taking this perspective a little bit further and he's saying, here's who you were and here's how you used to live and here's how you used to act. And he says, but, and, and Paul talks about this with this new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. But you are no longer living in your former ignorance because you now have Christ and Christ is greater and superior than everything else that exists. So, no longer live that way move into this. He uses this word, don't be conformed to the passions. And it might remind you of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, and then notice the correlation here, by the renewal of your mind. Again, the importance of our mental preparation in fighting the battle that we're facing. And Paul continues, by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we, last week we looked at this. Peter said that the will of God is that you would be obedient children. Right? So not the specifics of who should I marry or what career should I have or those kinds of things, but the more, the big picture view where we step back and we look at it as God's will is for me to obey him. And according to Romans 12, 2 here, it says we have to transform our minds and renew our minds so that we can know what the will of God is because our sinful hearts don't know what obedience to God is. So what it's saying to us, and this is, this is why I say the Bible's more about God than about us, is For us to discern and understand what the will of God is, is that we have to have a renewed mind and the Holy Spirit has to show us what's good. I can't even see it on my own. I do the things that I want because I am a selfish person. And when I submit myself to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he says, no, we're not going to live that way any longer. Here's how I want you to live. And he renews our focus onto that which matters and that which matters for eternity. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. Now, the hard part is that there's a few words that say, in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Is this word holy, if you want to translate it, and again, this is a command that Peter's giving to us, is, is to be set apart or to be completely different. So in the Old Testament, it says God is holy, which means he is completely on a different playing field than us. He is completely separate, completely, uh, R.C. Sproul says, he's completely other than everything we can understand and, and be. And so when we read scripture and we start to understand that God cannot be in the presence of sin because he's completely holy, we start to see the need for a mediator. And ultimately, that would be Jesus who comes to the cross, dies on the cross for our sins so that we could approach the Father through Christ's blood. Because that's the only way. And so how are we to be holy? How are we to be completely set apart and different when God is in a category all his own? Thomas Schreiner, the commentator, says this, while living on this earth, Christians have to fight the desires of sin. They are called to be obedient children, separated from evil in all that they do. They are to be holy, for that accords with the character of God who is holy and has called believers to himself. So how can we be holy? It's actually very simple. Ignore yourself and listen to the Holy Spirit because we have God in us. And when we do that, we stand out, we stand completely separated from the world because the way in which we 
make our decisions, the different things that we choose to do, where we live, the jobs that we take, all these things, they need to have a different framework than the rest of the world. And they'll look at you and they'll say, why would you do that? Like, why would you spend your money there? Why would you not do this? And I've used this example lots, but just the shock on the person's face just kind of said it all for me is when Shayla and I were going to leave Melfort, and we had been there for seven years, and, and it was in a quite a big church, and so the salary was quite good, and then we were moving to this little town of 800 people, and I was going to go from a youth pastor, or an associate pastor, to a senior pastor, and the banker that I was talking to was like, so I bet this comes with a pretty big pay raise, right? And I was like, actually, it's like 12 grand less a year. And he just looked at me and said, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And, he, and I was like, how do, I, how do I explain to him that this is what God's called me to do, and I know this will work out far better than if I do my own thing. How do you do that? Well, you can't. Because how we as Christians process everything comes under the reflection of here's what God's called you to do. Here's what he's asked you to do. And he's going to equip you to do that, and he's going to make a way for you to do that. But sometimes that means we have to live on less. Sometimes that means we have to give up things that we want. Sometimes it means we have to give up a lifestyle that we thought we always would have for what he's called us to. And so what is happening is really God saying, will you obey me if obeying me is harder tomorrow than it is today? Right? He's testing us, as it said in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 1. Those trials, those various trials that we face are testing us to see if we will grow in our maturity and our understanding. There's a, there's a book written, uh, a grouping of books, it's called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and one of them is on church membership. And this is in a very different context than ours, so I'm not suggesting we should employ this, but this is how strongly they believe in it. As they say, for their church membership, if you come in and say, yeah, we want to be a, it's a big urban center, but they say, we want to be a, a member of your church, they actually ask where you live and they map it out and they say, if you're too far away from the church, that you're not allowed to be a member because there's a closer local church that needs you. Like, I don't think I could imagine someone coming and be like, I'd like to be a member of Banff Church. and be like, no, sorry, you're a little too far away. Different context here than there, but what, if, what they're saying is that what you should do and how you should orient your life depends more upon God and less about everything else. And so if you cannot serve because you have to travel too far, don't come to our church, go to a different one. And what I started to read in there was actually several of the elders actually uh, sold their house and moved into, which was this area closer to the church, was actually a more difficult and more dangerous area because they believed in the mission of the church and they wanted to orient their life around that. That's what God's called us to do. God has called us to look at things from a spiritual context and we shouldn't just look at it and go, well, will I make more money or am I going to be closer to my extended family? Those are realities that we should factor in, but they shouldn't be the dominant factor. The dominant factor should be, God, what are you asking me to do? How do you want me to minister? How do you want me to reach out to others? And that will look different for every one of us. But in doing that, that will set us apart to be holy because the very way in which we think is different than the world. And the world will look at it and say, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that they will see your good deeds and they will praise your Father in heaven. And he's talking about people who aren't even Christians. So for us to look at that and realize that the way in which we conduct our lives can show how we orient our hope and how we can be holy. He continues on. 
says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is speaking of Jesus. So, so Peter's taking this little detour to remind us that God is not reactive. And it's not like sin happened and then he was trying to figure out some kind of a plan to do. He's saying that before the foundation of the world even is that Jesus already was the solution to the problem that hadn't even happened yet. And so when you read things like in John, you actually see when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then 14 says, He was with, or, oh boy, guys. Let's flip there. <laughs> Let's quote this right, shall we? John 1. That'll probably get me fired, but let's do that again. Right, so he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And those Word, that Word is capitalized, right, implicating uh, or indicating something. You get to 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is from the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. As John is telling us that in the beginning of creation, Jesus was actively involved. And so sometimes we kind of think of it in this opposite way that God the Father created and then Jesus showed up on the scene and then at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came upon the scene. But what all of Scripture teaches us is that they were all together at the beginning. And so Peter's reminding us of that. He's having us go back to that God is not reactive. God has plan and God has purpose. And then the final uh, imperative, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincerely brother love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Is, Jesus says it this way in another place. He says, they will know you are my disciples by what? By the love that you have for one another. Is the very, one of the very marking things about a disciple is that they love their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we as a church are being called to put away whatever pettiness we might have or the personality differences that exist with some people in the church and we are called to love them and we are called to love them so fervently that the world sees it and that they just, they can't even ignore it. In Acts chapter 2, when you see kind of the beginnings of the church, you see them kind of gathered together and it says that if someone had need, that someone else would just sell their field so that they could meet that need. Is they understood there was a difference. They were to love and to support and to help their brothers and sisters no matter what the cost and no matter how difficult it was. And so I think that's more in a corporate sense than necessarily an individual sense is that we as the church, when someone is hurting, when someone is in pain, we should be the one that rallies to that and answers that call, not the world. We should already be done answering that call by the time the world even hears about it. To love one another. And that's difficult. The body of Christ is, is talked about much like as a family. And how many of you get along with every one of your family members perfectly? Sometimes it's messy. Right? Sometimes it's difficult, but we are called to love each other with unending and unceasing love. So these three things that we're supposed to do, orient ourselves in the hope that is in Christ. And, and we talked about this at our young adult Bible study. Um, this idea of biblical hope is different than, than what we might think, right? So uh, the typical way we use the word hope is I hope I win the lottery tomorrow, right? I'm not going to buy a ticket, but I still hope I'm going to win. 
It's foolish. It's ridiculous. I hope it doesn't snow this winter, right? It's not going to happen. Or there's maybe some things that we hope that might happen, but they're improbable. Biblical hope is this belief that what God has promised and what God has said hasn't happened yet, but we know it will happen. And so we orient our hope in that promise that God is trustworthy and God is faithful. So we hope for the return of Christ. Not because we don't think it's going to happen, but because it hasn't happened yet. And so we orient our hope in that. So we put our hope on everything about who Christ is and what he's called us to do and, and realize that he alone holds us. Then we are called to be holy, so now we have to change everything and how we do and why we do what we do under, under the framework of Christ as head. And I am a servant under him. And then lastly, to love one another with unceasing love. As is, is Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if any member of the body suffers, then all suffer together. And so we need to fight for one another, to build each other up and to help each other. And so if there's need, make that need known and let your brothers and sisters come to your time of aid because we all will go through that difficulty. We like in our North American mindset to be self-sufficient. We don't like to ask for help. We don't like to admit that we need help. But all that's doing is that's pushing us further away from God and further away from what he's called us to do and we're starting to dwell on our own merits and our own abilities and our own desires. And so if there's a need that you have this morning, don't let today go by without declaring that need to your family. Literally, this is supposed to be the body of Christ that cares more for one another than the world can understand. We are called to love one another. He finishes this section by saying the idea of the word of God. And this is why you'll hear me say this over and over and over. And actually, in, in January, I'm going to be away for a week. And, and I called up Nick, uh, who used to come to church here, lives in Calgary now. And I said, Nick, I, I, do you want to preach? And he said, sure, here's what my sermon idea is. Uh, he's pretty prepared, obviously. And, and he said, it's the sufficiency of the word of God. And I said, good, done. Let's do it. Because you cannot hear enough about the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority that it has in our life. As Paul says, all flesh, all of us, we're going to wither. We're going to go away. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Is regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of location on the earth, no matter what the little specifics are in our life, is this book is true 100% and has authority for your life. And so if we go to churches and we go to preachers who, who teach good morals or, or things that logically sound good but ignore this, then all of that's going to wither away and it's going to fail too. This is why the prosperity gospel, as an example, does not work because it promises that which Scripture doesn't promise. And so when we buy into that, all of a sudden that'll crumble away and we go, this isn't what I signed up for. But what we read in Scripture is true. And, and so Peter doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, when you come to faith, don't worry. The trials stop and the persecution stops and life gets good. He says, prepare. Prepare your minds for the battle that's coming because the various trials that are coming your way are only going to intensify. Because we're not fighting a battle that's flesh and blood. We're fighting a battle that is directly against what Satan wants. And he wants us to crumble. 
And so for us to consider these things and to go, okay, this last verse, the word is the good news that was preached to you. Literally, or if you literally translate that word, is the gospel that was preached to you. Everything is about Christ. Everything is about what he has done for us on the cross. And if we understand that, and the, I should say, the more that we understand that, the more we orient our life, not based on the material, but on the spiritual. And I confess, I got a long way to go yet, because the world still has my attention a lot of times. And I got to fight that, and I got to move to what he's called me to do. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. And, and my prayer for, for myself and for all of us this morning is that we would do these things that we've discussed, that we would orient our hope on you, knowing that you have purpose and meaning for everything that we're going through and that you will take all that is broken and ugly and you will redeem it to something good. So God, may we set our hope on that. May we set our hope on the fact that Jesus is coming again and we know and we can be certain for all your promises come true. God, help us to be holy in a world that is dark a world that is confusing, a world that wants to fight and argue, and, and may we be a shining light. May we stand completely apart from it, not because we're not involved in the world, but because the way in which we choose to understand the world and the way we choose to conduct ourselves is completely something different. It's focused on you. And lastly, God, may we love one another with the love of Christ. We read in Scripture that Jesus viewed the church as his bride, that he would lay his life down for, and I pray that we would understand that same level of love for one another, that we would meet the needs of our fellow Christians, that we would seek to honor and to love one another because you have called us to do that. And God, as this last verse has said, all of this takes place under the auspices of the gospel. So may we understand the message of Jesus Christ. Not just in an intellectual way, but in an understanding that your love for us, that you were unwilling for us to not be redeemed and you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And he was obedient, as scripture says, to death, even death on a cross. And he rose again so that we might have new life and a living hope. So God, may that center everything else in our life and may we submit to your headship. May all the decisions we make and how we live our lives be surrounded under the gospel. God, we are so grateful for your promises of redemption to us through scripture. May we continue to be obedient to you, not out of obligation, but out of sincere love and gratefulness for all that you have done to us. God, we love you. We thank you. Go with us now this week. Amen.